what I hear from parents, like, I'm exhausted, I don't have capacity for this. There's all these things that block us from being curious and developing the ability to just see kids in the moment. The old paradigm is missing emotional together. Now we're in this new world of, okay, what is coming up for me? What is my nervous system communicating to them? Welcome to the Freely Rooted Podcast, where we are passionate about helping women reclaim their metabolisms, restore their youthful vitality, and rediscover God's original design for motherhood and wellness. We are your hosts, Fallon and Corey, and we're so glad you're joining us for season four. If you're new here, be sure to listen to our previous episodes where we talk through many of our favorite foundational topics. Now grab your favorite nourishing drink and join us as we continue discussing simple, attainable, and life-changing approaches to wellness. Katie, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. I know Fallon is too. Your platform is such a breath of fresh air to me. I love how the algorithm by now, like if I click on Instagram, even if you made a post like three days prior, it's like right there on the front of my feed. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's just such a breath of fresh air to me. Your perspective is just so beautiful and we're so excited to have you on. And I would love for you to tell our audience just how you have come into the place where you are now as an occupational therapist and just what you've cultivated online and put into digital products and platforms now. And also you work with people as well. But yeah, tell us a little bit about your story of of how you got into this place. Well, thank you. And hello, everyone. Thanks, Corey and Fallon for having me on. I'm super excited to connect with you. And I've been kind of a follower for a while for both of your worlds. And occupational therapy, so I'm an occupational therapist by training, and it's really evolved over time again and again. But how I started out was really a lot of nudges toward working with kids in some capacity. So I was always babysitting constantly growing up and always felt a security around kids and was really into just play and relating and the honesty, I think sometimes brutal honesty that can come with being with kids. But um <laughs> But I didn't really want to be a teacher. I tried to go into education for a bit after undergrad. And um, a lot of different experiences led me to totally change my life path. So for a while, I thought I wanted to be a CEO, corner office in the city. Then I lost my brother, actually, at the end of high school, just before I went to college. So I kind of spent college like, I don't want to do that anymore. Like I need to do something meaningful and make an impact in a different way. And so I graduated undergrad thinking, I still don't really know, but I'll take action and uh, started to get a job for unemployment or the unemployment agency in Michigan, actually. And I talked with a claimant whose daughter was traveling the world talking about ergonomics. So in this really roundabout way, she was an occupational therapist. And that's how I first heard of it. And then I moved to Chicago and started dating my now husband who lived behind a pediatric occupational therapy clinic. And that was really what I was like, wow, OT and kids, this combined thing. So a lot of different synchronicities that really led me to OT, which a lot of people don't know what occupational therapy is. And it's really this weird thing often. So to give a overview of it, it's really looking at how occupation 
brings mental wellness. So not just kind of talking about it or therapizing, which can absolutely be helpful, but looking at how we can heal and integrate our whole selves through daily routines and occupations. So whether that is relating with peers, relating with family or play, sleep, eating, all of the things that we do through daily life. And then really what led me to Thriving Littles was recognizing how little known a lot of the work that we were doing in the clinic was. So looking at the nervous system and stress responses and how those things get in the way of OT or in of wellness, of wholeness. So from there, it started to open up a lot of the things that I needed to unpack. And I looked at my own behavior and I thought, wow, I have a lot of these same stress responses that are coming up and my own kind of family patterns that were, you know, some helpful, some not helpful. And really it led me to merge it with a lot of the looking at trauma healing and moving through some more intense things and how everything fit together. So that really led me to work with kids and families through Thriving Littles. when I started this online world almost five years ago. And then really specializing in supporting what parents and now even just adults in general, moving through triggers and stress responses and things like that. So lots of different little, again, I feel like it's like a very God-led path that brought me here and uh, talking with you today. I love that. Thank you for sharing a snippet of your story. And just to echo what Corey said, you know, we're just so thankful to have you on here today. What you're doing is so important and we're super thankful to share this time and space with you. And I love that you gave a definition of occupational therapy, because even as you started getting into it, I was like, wait, do I know how to define occupational therapy? And so that was really helpful. And I would love to kind of continue that conversation of a bit of a verbiage breakdown. Let's talk about uh, you know, before we get into the the weeds of all of these words, can you walk us through dysregulation, co-regulation, and self-regulation, you know, the meaning behind those words and how they apply to kids and to, you know, parents or adults as well? Yes, the words are important. And dysregulation is one that is out there more and more, which is really exciting mm-hmm. because it really is an entirely different way of looking at behavior. So versus looking at behavior as intentional or kids doing something to be stubborn or defiant or whatever, we're looking at it as a state or something happening deeper. So dysregulation is a disorganized response to an emotion or sensation in the body or reactive. I could say reactive too. So instead of feeling sad and crying or going to somebody sharing about it, we might feel sad and then get really angry or uh, abrasive or reactive. So it's coming out in a way that isn't necessarily aligned with what is happening on the inside. And then co-regulation is a process of being alongside another person that is regulated enough to almost lend thinking about our brains as social organs and our nervous system. It's like they're almost lending their capacity to the other person. So with kids, we're talking about it from a lens of their brains are really not developed in many ways. So they're obviously they're incredible. And from the time they're newborns, there's so much there. And there is a lot that isn't there yet. So it's really there ability to move from that reactive, like sensory motor reflexive 
way of engaging with the world. So they feel something on the inside, they react. What allows them to develop the ability to do that on their own, to regulate on their own, is thousands of repetitions of going through this co-regulation process alongside an adult. So it's really wiring their uh, stress and pleasure response systems and whatever they learn about their attachment. So ideally, they learn that attachment feels nurturing and supportive. Alternatively, they can learn that attachment feels stressful, but they still develop that attachment system in some way. So co-regulation ideally is where they're developing the brain capacity that stress or rather attachment and connection feels pleasurable and they can experience sensations in the body and move through it in a way that feels like they can match their hopes or their intention with their outer behavior or their response. And then self-regulation is the outcome of that. So we have dysregulation and then co-regulation and self-regulation is the outcome where ideally they can be in space. So Right now we're doing a lot of self-regulation, just filtering through sounds that we might hear or um, how much we need to activate our bodies against gravity. So there's a lot that happens in order for us to communicate and filter the sounds that we need to hear. And self-regulation is the ability to do that in an organized way and really monitor and modify our behavior and intentions and sensations. So it's really looking at a lot of the things that we view as mental illness are a breakdown somewhere in this pathway. So we're helping kids to develop this pathway. And I feel like we have a huge influence and we're not responsible for everything. Of course, I really believe that there are going to be painful, hard things that happen no matter what we do in biology and other things are the big factor, but it's really thinking about how we're giving kids these pathways to regulate their nervous system and to feel secure enough and safe enough in the world and live to their fullest potential and purpose and all that good stuff. That was such a great explanation. And I love what you talked about with just the idea of looking at a child and being able to kind of flip the script of what we might see as like bad behavior or yeah, just like labeling, labeling the behavior And then flipping that script and being able to be like, wow, there's some dysregulation that might be happening right now. And for our audience that is new to maybe reframing these ideas and might have, you know, their base of understanding when it comes to children's behavior as more of those like moralistic and reward-based behavior programs, I wonder how you would introduce our audience to recognizing what dysregulation might look like in practical terms. Great question. So really we're in a new paradigm of looking at behavior, relationships, emotions. So we're coming from this older paradigm of really behaviorism, which I know you've talked about quite a bit in regards to nutrition, where we're looking at behavior as something that is either bad or good and we can extinguish, or, you know, we have a positive reinforcement, which again, really is missing all of the neurobiology and the humanity behind what we are wanting or how we're wanting to support kids in developing these pathways. So when I think about signs in daily life to look for with dysregulation, even going back to infancy, 
dysregulation is really part of our development. So we're not looking at it as, again, this bad thing to go away as much as this is a sign that we can support. So infants have that, again, that reflexive need. So when they're hungry and they cry, um, it's actually, you know, a helpful way that they're communicating and getting their needs met. And then older kids might start to look like, for example, a lot of referrals that I'll get is like hitting siblings or having difficulty at mealtimes. So not a lot of digestion, sitting at the table, uh, a lot of nervous system regulation goes into just completing these daily tasks, difficulty getting dressed, whether it is something like organizing, sequencing, planning, how to get dressed, visually, spatially processing how the clothes go, feeling sensitivity to a tag or a seam. And then suddenly, instead of filtering it in a way that is supportive and that we can habituate that sensation, so we might feel a tag or a seam and we start to uh, notice it and it might be a little irritating, but then our system habituates it and regulates it. And kids that have difficulty discriminating that or are over-responsive to that, it might bother them all day long. So it's like they have this constant irritating thing that they're not able to articulate. And tactile is one that's really emotionally linked. They all are. But tactile is really hard to articulate often. We also see this with temperature. So kids that are suddenly like wanting to jump out of the car seat or maybe they're overwhelmed by the movement input, so the vestibular input. And as an OT, I'm looking at all the sensory systems. So the eight sensory systems, we often learn five, and there are three others, interoception, proprioception, vestibular, that we really look at in a deep way because of how it impacts their ability to self-regulate and how sensitivities can show up. So it, it might be confusing. It's like suddenly they want to you know, jump out of the car or they're overstimulated by all of that input and can't manage it. So kind of an extreme motion sickness, for example. Uh, other ways that it can show up is sleep. So really looking at sleep as an autonomic state or ability to downshift and the sleep-wake cycles. And regulation is really linked with that. So when we look at ongoing sleep issues, not just developmental. Kids kids sleep can be all over, as many know. But uh, looking at it as we want to be able to gradually move through these different states. So a theory, polyvagal theory, has really become more and more known. And it aligns with a lot of looking at you know attachment theory or this interpersonal neurobiology and brings a lot of it together in looking at how the vagus nerve is either supporting our body to feel secure or putting our body and nervous system on alert. So when we look at how behavior is showing up, they might be in this ideally safe, secure social state. So kind of top of the ladder is that ventral state where we feel overall pretty good. We're ready, we're alert enough, and we can process and filter what we need to. And then down the ladder is when we start to get the stress responses. So the system is saying protect in some way. So that can look like fight, flight responses where kids might be, um, fight response could look like hitting, kicking, biting, yelling, screaming, 
resistant. So a lot of my kids will just be resistant to a lot of things or they're not feeling secure enough. So they're and not resistant in a health, healthy developmental way. So don't want to pathologize kids that are like, no, in the no stage, or there is a very healthy willfulness and resistance stage that they go through. But this is more a resistance that's coming from an on-edge dysregulated state. So flight behaviors might look like running away, hiding under the table, hiding in general. So some kids like to play hide and seek all the time. And this is different where it's doesn't really make sense when they're hiding or they're hiding in a more reactionary way versus a playful way. Uh, and then down the ladder further, when we're feeling really stressed and that fight flight isn't working, we might go into a freeze state where we're kind of full of that f- sympathetic energy, but not able to act on it or a shutdown state where it's kind of a collapsed state overall. So it's really aligned with our primitive protective responses and a need to survive from a tiger, for example, where we might try to fight the tiger, realize that isn't working, we're running from the tiger and realize that isn't working. And then we might freeze like deer in headlights and then play dead. So it's all these survival instincts that we have that really show up in just about all of our behaviors can be explained in this way and looking at it as are they overstimulated or understimulated and how can we kind of bring them up? So if I see have a kid that is really passive or never wanting to play, never wanting to engage, not in an observational way, but in a self-protective way, then we're thinking, how do we support their nervous system with sensory? Um, I look at interaction, sensory input, an environment to kind of bring them up and help their system ascend the ladder? Or do we need to bring them down and use our interaction, which is really co-regulation and sensory input, which I call body co-regulation or environment and look at, look at supporting from the ground up. So the behaviors, so they can be successful uh, from the inside out. Katie, that was really, really helpful. And it's so timely. What's funny is that within the past few weeks, even um, I've had some conversations with all of my kiddos, but particularly my oldest child about how, you know, does our response match the situation that just happened? And, you know, kids and adults alike, I think I can kind of say that, I mean, as a whole, my family has walked through a lot of dysregulation issues from, you know, trauma, from, whether that's medical or familial, I mean, there's just a lot of, every family kind of has their own sort of like background of things to sort through. But I think my family in this season has particularly been walking through this idea of being dysregulated. And so I'd love to kind of shed light on a personal level, sort of what that has looked like in our home. But um, I love that kind of overview that you gave of, uh, you know, how it can play out in a physical way. It can play out in an emotional way. I mean, I think that dysregulation is so multifaceted. And I think that I forget like the physical component of it sometimes. So you talked about like the tags or the temperature, which is so funny. I've had one of my kiddos, the the one that deals with dysregulation the most has said at random times, like, I have to get out of the car. I have to get out of the car. And as you were talking, I was like, oh my goodness, that's, that's probably part of what's happening is that, you know, that the combination of uh, sensations that are happening in that moment it's just, it's just too much for his little system. And I'm always like, why does he need to get out of the car? I, I'm like, well, I don't understand. And that was such a, a helpful insight as to why that's kind of happening. But 
yeah, this conversation has been so fresh for us because we just have had so many of them lately, you know, because my kids are a little bit older. I do have a three-year-old, but I have a seven, eight-year-old. And so they have this conscious awareness of, you know, was my response actually adequate and appropriate? That's the word we use. Is my response appropriate to the scenario that just happened? And I think all of us have just been kind of dealing with trying to figure out how to come back into the state of, you know, nervous system regulation. And so my kiddos, you know, we're, we're still dealing with a lot of just overreaction to things again, where the, the reaction does not match the response. So like maybe dad has to go run an errand for a second. And my kids are like, is he ever coming back? <laughs> One of my kids in particular is like, is he has a very hard time with dad leaving the house, which is strange because we have no history of dad, like not coming back. But it's, you know, we're working through learning, okay, how do we respond to things in an appropriate and measured way? And I was just telling my oldest son yesterday that, you know, this is not something that just children deal with, that, you know, mom and dad are still learning very much how to provide just a sense of calmness and safety. And we've been doing a lot of like tapping and, you know, like sentences and affirmations and things like that, because we do have just such a history of of trying to learn how to bring ourselves like back into balance and back into regulation. And so I feel like Katie, I could have like a two hour interview, literally where I used examples of my own family to ask you, because it just, you know, we're dealing with this on such a, a deep level. And I know I've shared that on my Instagram before that, you know, we just have medical trauma in our, in our background. And so I have one kiddo in particular that just very much has a lot of dysregulation. And so we're trying to shift into that co-regulation and teach self-regulation. So this is just going to be a really fascinating conversation. Corey, so I know your kiddos are younger, but I feel like you guys are probably transitioning to this era of sort of developmental regulation. And so I'd love to hear, you know, how this has played out in your home with your young ones and then with you guys as adults too. Like I know we have had so many private back and forth conversations about the things that we bring to the table from our own personal lives. And so I'd love to hear Mm -hmm. how all of this plays out and looks in your house right now. Totally. Well, something that I find really interesting is the difference between my two children with one being born via C-section in a hospital in that kind of like setting. Mm -hmm. And then my younger one, home birth, born at night, and then immediately was like circadian rhythms kicked in. She was sleeping almost the night, like just maybe waking up twice to nurse, like even day one of her, of her being born. And it's so interesting, even just watching that of like, my son was waking up all throughout the night, his first couple years or a year and a half of life until we really worked out some things through fascia care and body work and nervous system regulation. And there's just so many ways that it shows up, but one way it shows up now in a really clear way to me is with transitions. So if my son is in a state and usually a reflection of my own regulation as well, because I know that that firstborn to the mom, they're so connected with that dyad. If I'm dysregulated and he's dysregulated, transitions are really extreme. And so whether it's, hey, you got about five more minutes, you know, scootering in the cul-de-sac, and then we're going to go hop in the car and go to Whole Foods or whatever that is. On a normal day, he'd be like, cool, five minutes, and then kind of be silly and then come get in the car. But if if he's feeling particularly dysregulated that day, he might scream or cry whenever I present that expectation. And even with those parameters of like, Hey, in five minutes, not right now. I I think we, we wouldn't be surprised if we were like, get in the car right now. And they had an extreme response, but even allowing with, with communication for that little warning in between, if he has an extreme reaction to that. And also I love 
Katie, with what you were saying, resistance is super healthy and normal for children to express and have this autonomy of resistance because they are their own separate humans. But it's that like zero to a hundred is what I notice whenever my child is feeling particularly dysregulated. And like I said, again, I just want to reflect it back on myself because it truly is so connected. It's usually not an isolated event for him to feel dysregulated. It's usually the family dynamics in the home. And then, and especially me with my, with my firstborn. So yeah, transitions is how I would say that usually shows up the most is like each transition from one thing to the next, whether it's dinner to bath, bath to bedtime is like a whole extreme reaction. I think that's so such a big point of like the big reactions that seem totally disproportional to what happened can be such a big sign. And like, as you're mentioning, like the, the parent child dynamics, and I candidly don't speak specifically often about parenting because we've been in our own long path to hopeful parenthood and spend painful and all kinds of heart opening in many ways. But I, I feel that even going through this and seeing myself work with kids, it really shined light on my own triggers and my own stuff by being with kids because my reaction, you know, I'd be with a three-year-old or a four-year-old or this teeny little human who's been on earth for like 48 months, you know, and then I would be so disproportionately responding to them at times, or like my whole system would be reacting to something that they were doing. So taking it as it isn't always about the thing, right? It's just not about, maybe they're upset about, you just said like a broken banana. So they ask for a banana split in half and then they get the banana and then they're freaking out about how the banana is broken and totally uh, upset about it. So it's really thinking about how our, their brains, especially because they're developing, they're born with that uh, kind of spinal cord brain stem, primitive reactive brain. And then they're developing the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex, which are the parts of the brain that have the prefrontal cortex is impulse control and ability to respond. It's really our thinking, logical brain. And then the limbic system is that kind of emotional, relatable memories area of the brain. So when we have stress, it might not be related to what is happening in the moment. Because as adults, our limbic system stores reactions and kind of memories, but not necessarily specific memories. It might be that the reaction that we're having is something that along the way was kind of stuck in this cycle. So we're wired to move through the stress cycle. And there's a hypothesis that emotion takes like 90 seconds to move through in a healthy way. So if we feel and move through and release, it's this natural process. And we watch kids go through that, you know, a lot. And then we get stuck in it because as humans, we have the thinking brain that comes in and then we have a stressful thought and then it fuels that emotional cycle again and we get stuck in it. Or kind of older paradigms and still happens all the time today is we as adults are logical and we think this isn't a big deal. Like you asked for the banana broken, like I say broken, but in half, you asked for the banana in half and I gave it to you in half. So we're logically, rationally talking it through, but that's like two brain states too high, really, to where they need to be connecting with, which is that deeper safety, security, co-regulation, which we'll talk more about what that can look like. But when they're in that like 
totally reactive state of their whole world was this banana and they're visualizing this banana and how it was meant to be. And then it's split in half and it's different. It doesn't match. So they're in that reactive black and white state and they're trying to adapt, but their brain centers aren't really developed yet. So they need that regulated enough adult near them in order to Stuart Shanker calls it like interbrain process of they're literally like borrowing our safety security so that they can develop those brain centers and have perspective taking and see the gray area and the big picture of what's going on. But often I see it as either instead of looking at it as a meltdown or a tantrum, even looking at it as an emotional release or a sensory release and moving through that emotional cycle in hopefully a healthy way. And then we can get to helping them have perspective after they're regulated enough to hear it. Because what happens in that moment of stress is their language centers go out the window. So when we're trying to teach in the moment or even telling kids to breathe in the moment, it's it can be dysregulating because their system might be totally bombarded, overstimulated. And then if we're saying, hey, take a take a deep breath, they're not ready to hear it. So their brain's trying to process the language now. And then it feels more stressed because it's already overloaded by the sensory world. And so really looking at what they need in that moment might be that co-regulation process, which is sending safety signals or saying less, doing less. And we can talk about practically what that looks like, but it's such a good point. Like the disproportional makes a lot of sense. If you look at our neurobiology and how things are stored and for, for us, like that has been one of the biggest ways that I've noticed my own things to unpack and trauma and wounds and things that showed up along the way. Okay. So Katie, I'd love to hear your thoughts and interpretation here. I know that, you know, for many of us kind of in, in our generation, in this generation, we were sort of raised in a way where maybe emotions weren't always honored and they weren't always understood. And I think that there has kind of been a lack of this sort of teaching of like emotional comprehension, emotional fluency in kind of our generation where we weren't raised to actually honor, you know, if you're angry like that's okay. And if you're sad or frustrated, that's okay. And there are ways that we can deal with that in a way that's still honoring to the people around us and still respectful to the people around us. And I think that, I mean, I can say personally that I feel like I was sort of raised in a way where emotions were sort of suppressed and it wasn't really something that you talked about. And they often came out in different ways as, you know, I got older because they weren't honored when I was a kid, you know, that I could have space to cry or space to be frustrated. It was kind of like, you know, stop being mad or stop crying or stop, you know, and I think that's the model that a lot of us grew up in. And so I would love to talk through, you know, how can we change that with our own kids? How can we leave space for our kids' emotions to be healthy for them to understand them, to validate them. You know, I feel like I'm, I'm constantly doing a check base with my kids, kind of like a pop quiz where I'm like, Hey, is it okay to feel angry? And in their younger years, they would kind of be like, no. And I'm like, no, yes, it is. It's okay to feel angry. I'm like, is it okay to feel frustrated? And they're like, yes. I'm like, but is, is it okay to dishonor or hurt other people when we're angry or frustrated? And they're like, no. And so I think that's kind of an important piece of the conversation that, you know, we have to both teach and model to our children. And so I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on this and, you know, how can we as parents really give our kids the tools to handle their emotions well, to honor them, to not suppress them and to still kind of be respectful to both themselves 
and the people around them, you know, as they're sorting through those emotions. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yes. And I think I'm really speaking to this lens of what is most effective for us to show up in the world as mentally and physically healthy as we can. So looking at the spectrum of this authoritarian-based way of being, which says emotions aren't in the story at all. Like We should be able to control our emotions and control our behavior. And they aren't considering the importance of emotion or that emotion is totally core to being a human being. And we are literally emotional beings that think, I forget who said that, but versus we think of ourselves as thinking feelings who show emotion, but we're 80% of our emotional and body information is sending signals to our brains and our thoughts. So if we're feeling dysregulated at the core where we have emotional stress there, no matter how much we try to control our thoughts, it will be defeating for everybody because 80% of our circuitry is telling us what to, if we feel unsafe or we feel that stress, then our brains will go into overdrive or overthinking or shut down, or uh, it's really hard to override that and would even argue impossible. Um, And it will come out in other ways or health issues. And I definitely have that where I relate to that feeling of suppressing or showing up the way that we needed to and being, you know, good and nice and quiet and easy. And it's like a little adult. I started babysitting when I was nine. Like I was, you know, walking myself to school and doing laundry by five. (laughs) So we can adapt and cope in this system of emotions aren't necessarily good things. Like that's the authoritarian view. And then the other side of that might be permissiveness where emotions are the whole story. So some people, you know, I think we are then afraid to be power control compliance. Um, That's probably authoritarian would be like spanking for big behaviors, which I know is a super controversial, sensitive thing to talk about. But this lens that we can kind of like punish kids out of behavior, which is you know, it would be really great and convenient if it was effective and it can be effective in the short term, but it's thinking at what cost, at what does that do to that emotional cycle? It doesn't really move through and allow them to create these pathways to self-regulation. It's kind of a maladaptive way to get around them and to suppress behavior. And then we see the other side, which is permissiveness, where emotions kind of the whole story. So this might be if kids are Uh, nervous about going to school, you might just be like, okay, we won't go. It's fine. We'll never, you know, we'll drop out of that school. We'll switch classes. No big deal. You can do whatever you want. Kind of that emotions become almost, they take over and rule the roost. So kids might feel, and then the outcomes of both of these are actually that kids learn that emotions aren't uh, really secure or safe because then if they feel something, which Again, they're in that irrational, illogical place. So if they say something, I'm, as an occupational therapist, I'm taking it more as insight to their emotional experience versus literally. So if if they say something like, I don't like you, Katie, or you're the worst, or you're the worst mommy, or we hear kids say these things all the time. And it is so far from literal, usually, you know, not that it can't be literal, but it's usually that they're in a state that they're just crying out for help and need support. So 
the, the goal for us is to be in that middle ground, which is this authoritative way of taking in and saying, hey, you don't want to go to school? Like, I wonder, like, what's going on? Or this is a new school. We just started the year. This is a new teacher, new kids. There's lots to adapt to. Or maybe getting, you know, curiosity, normalizing, validating, like thinking, oh, it's like when I started a new, new job. I remember that a new boss. I didn't know what to expect or um, where my lunch was, or maybe the cafeteria smells funny, like whatever, who knows what it is that they, they are where those nerves are coming from. So we're pulling in parts of that emotional world and also maintaining high expectations of what oh, we do need to go or maybe the school's not a great example because the school systems can be all kinds of challenging. And uh, sometimes I feel like it's like whistleblowing that they're like, this isn't an ideal system for many kids right now. So um, just a side note on that one. So it's like, what are the messages there? What are they bringing up that could be valuable, even though it can look really messy? And that's where our judgments as adults really come in. We can't be empathetic and curious if we are judging so noticing our rawest judgments, which will come up because often when we've repressed our own emotions, we are stuck in that cycle. And I can't tell you how many times I've been totally blindsided, caught off guard from this nervous system level because something has happened with a family. So my work that I do is with kids and families in session. And um, so there's, it's all play-based and there's often meltdowns and it's like in the moment, the rawest things that can happen. And so often I would be shaken up after certain situations and it's going through this whole parallel process of pulling in both sides versus getting caught up in my own reaction, my own judgment of like, Oh my goodness, here we go again. Or they are being a little rat or entitled, or this is ridiculous. I think as humans, like we all have these initial reactions that come up that like, or I just don't want to do this today. Like this, what I hear from par parents, you know, it's like, I'm exhausted. I don't have capacity for this. Or there's all these things that block us from being curious and developing the ability to just see kids in the moment. So I think the old paradigm is either missing emotional together, or that's probably more the tendency. And now we're in this new world of, okay, what is coming up for me? What is my nervous system communicating to them? And Corey, you mentioned like their behavior and how it can reflect the dynamics of the family or, and I can think of so many times where, you know, kids were dysregulated. And then I realized that I was dealing with stuff that I wasn't accessing in the moment. And I would be so irritable and reactive to the, you know, this child and the gun. It's like a little kid and it's so easy to see from the outside. And then when you're in it, it feels so intense and so real. It feels so real because our limbic system is just amygdala is hijacked basically. And it throws us into this emotional flashback of a time that we felt powerless or out of control or typically insecure in some way, unsafe. And then we're not available to help them develop that pathway and co-regulate. So, and behavior doesn't always make sense. And as humans, we want things to make sense and be clear. And it can be really messy, which can make us all feel that insecurity and 
reactive as a result, like zero to a hundred comes when we feel most stressed, insecure, powerless, whatever it is cooking under the surface. That's so good. I think that what this echoes a lot is this idea of kind of in the West, actually, you just even said what I was thinking as you were speaking, you were talking about how we want an explanation or like we want like the logic, we want the reasoning. And it really does reflect more of that Western culture because even when we look at like, for those of you that are listening that are interested in maybe more of like, what is the biblical model of parenting? And I'm not about to tell you what I think that is. I, I truly believe everyone's on their own journey of seeking that out. And I'm not, not about to be like, I have authority on telling you what that is. But I think it's interesting when we look at, you know, the Eastern... I guess, original ideas of connecting with God, which is where the Bible originated in the first place, is, is within uh, Eastern culture. They believed in this idea of the age of accountability. And when you look at like the age of a child, it wasn't until, you know, boys and girls are around age 12, whenever they start to have more of that, like, responsibility placed on them to be able to understand the concept of sin, even within their culture. And then we look at neuroscience and like books like The Whole Brain Child or No Drama Discipline from Dr. Daniel Siegel, I believe is who is who wrote it. He's confirming these things with science of our children really are not capable of being in this logic sense where they can understand impulse control, where they can understand the consequences of their behavior. And so it's so interesting how in the West we believe that the right way of parenting is really just, I guess, obedience in the sense of like children understanding the consequences of their action as just a natural human capability. And yet it's so interesting how, like when we remove ourselves from the Western culture, we're able to see so much more compassion and grace and understanding for the child of what is developmentally appropriate for their bodies. And so when we talk about dysregulation and take the labels of bad behavior off of it and look at it for maybe what it actually is, essentially what they're asking for is help, right? Is that kind of what your perspective is, Katie? Absolutely. Yes. So it's their, their first reaction is actually really supportive to develop what they need to. And even if kids are, for example, I was just working with somebody where the kid kept coming up and like hitting the mom, you know, if we were talking or, and it, I think it'd be so easy to shut it down and be like, it is isn't okay to hit. And, and that can still be like, I'm not okay with you hitting me. But in that moment, when their language centers are offline and they're trying to articulate what they want, really seeing behavior as the communication. So behavior is sometimes the only thing that they have access to in the moment. So they're learning to process so much. And I think it's so easy to forget how little they are because they're capable of so much. So then we have high expectations, but in novel environments, in a transition, uh, if they're feeling a little bit stressed, their capacity can be way lower because their brain is really in this kind of really primitive development and everything is organizing and coming together, but it takes time, you know, especially kids that are prone to shame. Like I was definitely a more shame prone kid, still a shame prone human. But um, I think when we, 
when we give feedback and kids start to notice that, like, oh, that's not appropriate or that's not that's not something that will get me approval, rather, then we can easily shut down needs. So instead of communicating needs at all, we might just like stuff those so far down that we're it's hard to even articulate what we need. That's I see that all the time now with people in our generation. And so we think about the kid hitting the mom and it's like, oh, you you're wanting something like or you can we we're talking, you know, we're talking using cues and affect because that's what communicates with that emotional brain state is our affect, our gestures. And that's really the co-regulation aspect is how do we communicate with the parts of their brain and body that are available at the moment, instead of coming in at those two brain states too high and trying to teach them about hitting in that moment. And I am always an advocate of sharing boundaries. And I think this is such an idyllic way of talking about interaction. And then in real life, it can look much different. So I really think about it as like even doing this a fraction of the time or being intentional or even 5% more than we are today can go so far when it comes to supporting them to actually communicate instead of using that behavior. So we want to convey that emotion is okay. Behavior is something that we can shift and you know, sculpt. So if it's outward, it's much easier to sculpt than if it's inward and more internalized and kept away. I feel like this idea was really revolutionary for me as a parent, because again, I was kind of raised in a much different model than I'm, I'm sort of raising my kids in now. And I'm sure my kids after me will, you know, find things that they want to do differently in their parenting. But just this concept that, you know, what the world may see as like a disobedient child or a child that needs, you know, more discipline and like, sure. I think discipline in the true sense of the word of, you know, kindly teaching and structuring, you know, I think that can be a beautiful thing, but I think we've of course kind of skewed, the definition of, of discipline in, in kind of this generation and some past generations, but just this idea that, you know, a kid who is sort of like, quote, out of line, it may not be that they need more discipline in the, you know, sort of colloquial sense today, but they, they need probably something internal and more support. And this has just been really fresh for us. We are in the midst of a move right now, and we literally are, are living in two homes. <laughs> we have two homes right now. And so our kids are like, what is happening? I mean, life is so weird. And I had this moment a couple of days ago where I'm just like, all of my kids are so dysregulated, all of them. And, and they have all suddenly become like very, you know, high needs and perfect example. We were playing football outside. My, my husband loves to play football with my older boys. And one of my kids like dropped a pass or something. And I kid you not within 30 seconds, he was like, my life is boring and I want to run away from home. And we were like, what? <laughs> How did you get to that from dropping a pass? And it just was this like eruption all of a sudden of all these things that he had been suppressing and carrying that came out in that moment. Again, like with the banana where it's like, it wasn't about the football, but all of a sudden he let all of this stuff come out. And I was like, oh my goodness, the reason why he has been, you know, quote, acting out, you know, probably what most people would call it is because he has had all of these underlying emotional needs that have not been met. He needed more time with mom and more time with dad and more, you know, focused time in the midst of like all of this transition. And so I think that it's just such a grace to be able to exist in that headspace of like, okay, my kid needs something that they may not be getting as opposed to like, okay, my kids need some more, you know, timeouts or some more like, you know, consequences and like, sure, those things can like boundaries can be helpful, right? Like, like you were talking about Katie, there's this extreme where parents can jump to that. It's like, well, 
emotions just rule. And, you know, it, it, that's just how we determine things like, yes, boundaries are beautiful, but there's just so much grace in like acknowledging your kids needs. And this kind of, I wanted to ask you about this. There's kind of this idea. I don't remember where it originated and I'm sure it's from several different platforms at this point, but I, I saw a, I think it was a reel on Instagram a couple of weeks back or, or a feed post that was talking about how a lot of kids who are, you know, really well behaved and they're really submissive and they're, they seem from the outside, like super well mannered that they're actually just kids that have been suppressing their emotional needs. And I don't want to say that that's across the board true. It, what's interesting is that I had another friend find that same content and was like, oh my gosh, I feel like this is not always true because I feel like I have poured into my kids for them to have the ability to be, you know, obedient and respectful and, you know, kind. And so it's just, it's funny. I think there's kind of a lot of argument around this right now of like, okay, when we see really, you know, obedient, submissive kids, how much of that is maybe them suppressing things that they need and how much of it is kind of evidence of disrespect and character. Does this question make sense? I feel like, you know, because I I am very much a kid who now I'm not a kid. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I am an adult who as a kid was that like, you know, I obeyed everything. Like I was raised in a moralistic home. And so I obeyed everything. And I don't know that it was an intrinsic motivation as much as just like, oh, why well, I, I receive punishment if I don't obey. And so I ended up being, you know, the student who was like trying to overachieve and the, you know, employee who was trying to overachieve. Like that has been my whole story because I was that kid who probably was really obedient and regulated from the outside, but, you know, really wasn't having a lot of like inner needs met if that makes sense. And so like, what is, what is kind of the difference here? And what do you think about all this for, you know, kids who, who maybe like, how do we spot a kid who maybe had a bunch of needs that weren't met? And then how do we spot maybe a, like a functioning healthy adult who, you know, has their voice, but still respects authority? You know, what are the difference between those two scenarios? If that makes any sense after all that said? (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. I love this question because again, I think it's so easy for us to kind of fly under the radar if you are doing what is needed. And our whole system is built around these external things. Mm -hmm. So if we look a certain way, if we're acting a certain way, or if we, um, not even acting, but if we look a certain way, if we're getting good grades and we have, you know, maybe a successful job or if societally we look okay, then people tend to think like, okay, they're successful. But really what we know about that is there aren't a lot of ways that that aligns with mental health, physical health outcomes. So we can be really maladaptive coping, you know, maybe it's workaholism or controlling food. You know, that's something that I've definitely tried both of those things. And it's societally rewarded as like, oh my goodness, you're so thin or, oh my goodness, you're so driven when actually it's coming from a place of that sympathetic survival energy and it's really not healthy and it's not sustainable. And that's why I ended up with like thyroid and autoimmune issues. And that was really a big window into like, Hey, this is that suppressed stuff coming up that, you know, it's not sustainable. It's super energetically draining. So when we have this, what I would call emotional suppression or emotional control, self-suppression is not self-regulation. So self-suppression might be where we have a reaction or we have an emotion come up and we don't show it, don't express it, don't do anything with it. So we might develop this kind of auto-regulate system that allows us to suppress it, but it's 
it's really energetically demanding to do that because we're social beings and we're wired to uh, maybe go to others when we're most intensely stressed or seek support. And especially as kids, they need adults to develop those parts of the brain. Like it's a totally developmental social process that we've, that goes way back to like people organizing and orchestrating, you know, hunting for a whale, for example. It's like there used to be all this gestures and affect and signaling and ability to move through these really, really stressful situations. And then we got away from it and had this idea that we can control behavior and we can, it's, you know, kids that are good, we get good feedback and how that results later. So something I say often is that like the nicest kids may tend to become anxious adults because there's all this energy that we haven't moved through and made sense of and learned how to feel secure in. So the goal is that kids feel secure no matter what is coming up. So if they're saying like, oh, I just want to give up this whole thing, you know, kind of like you mentioned the example with football and how we can be reactive like that. And it's so human. It's so normal. So if we can talk about feeling really low or feeling like, you know, who hasn't wanted to just like chuck everything and go live in a cabin in the woods for a while? Maybe that's just me. But it's like when we have these stress or stressful moments and it's like it's it's so human to just have these big reactions And the idea is that we can learn to respond and have the brain development to respond versus react. But signs that I look for with kids that are suppressing is like, there's no range of emotion. So ideally we want kids to have a full range of emotion, whether that is ability to be joyful and be excited. Like I even hone down excitement, being excitable is still something that I'm like, I'm just, it's really vulnerable. Like sharing joy um, is such a practice because it's like, I have this in me of like, don't get too excited or don't be silly or like, this looks ridiculous. So like learning to play again was a big deal for me because being spontaneous and silly and goofy and non-purposeful was a total practice. So kids that are just kind of maybe flat affect or smiling all the time, or maybe they're nervous and they're smiling. We all do this. Like I used to laugh all the time. If I was nervous, if I was afraid, it would just come off as like laughter and it didn't align with what I was actually feeling. I would say something really serious and then like laugh. So it's that modulation doesn't match. It's like our inner experience isn't matching. And we often see it show up in other ways. So maybe, you know, stomach issues that are continuously coming up or not wanting to eat, wanting to eat a lot. So all the food things that can come up again, the sleep issues, like it's surfacing in other ways. And our system tends to go to a quick fix versus look at the environment and the interaction and what's helping, what's hindering. But um, it's often way easier to see the external externalized behaviors versus the internalized behaviors. So rather than blaming other kids or hitting other kids, we're directing anger at ourselves. So shame, self-blame, guilt, fear. It's just this, like, it's all directed inside versus out. And so it's, can be trickier to see for sure. Yeah. All of this rings really true for me. And I, when I became a parent, there were definitely some things that I had developed an awareness by then based on this one event that took place when I was 18 years old. And I remember so clearly I had, it was my third speeding ticket in a row where I was going over 95 miles per hour. <laughs> like, should I be talking about this? But it was my third in a row that I'd received in one month. And I was speeding 
over, I think it was like over 30 miles per hour more than the speed limit. And I was sitting there like with the ticket and the cop had driven off and I'm sitting there in my car and I'm shaking and crying and so scared. And in that moment, I was like, what am I afraid of right now? I was afraid of my parents' reaction. And I did not care at all about the actual law, breaking the law, being unsafe, putting other people's lives in danger, putting my own life in danger. There was that whole big picture awareness that did not actually exist in my mind or my body at that point. And I was 18 years old. I was, I think I was already out of the house at that point. And I think I was driving home from college one day. And I remember it like at that moment being like, this is interesting. Like, this is interesting that my fear is that strong of my parents' reaction and nothing else matters. My parents' disapproval, my parents' uh, discipline. And that really impacted me to understand like, what, what is that? And what was that? And going into parenthood, I felt like this veil was kind of like lifted off my eyes and allowed me to just pursue like what that is and what nervous system regulation is and just this understanding of authoritarian and behaviorist parenting principles. I adore my parents, but I remember my dad and there's not even a but. It's like more of like a I can I can laugh about this with him, but my dad was actually like an advocate for behaviorism and like really spoke really highly of it. And I, I remember whenever I had a child and he was like, there's this amazing thing called behaviorism. And I was like, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense on why I was such a great kid. I was just an angel child. I also think my parents raised us with just like so much love and respect. And I also lived on the street from both of my grandparents and just had a really incredible upbringing. And at the same time, I can recognize some of that fear was from that, you know, behaviorist model of just fearing that adult so much that it kind of shuts down everything, everything else. So I just relate to this so much. And it was one of the things that kind of just helped me have a little bit of a different perspective, not from a, I'm right, that's wrong, but just a different lens, you know? And I wanted to go into just on that note, like if you're sitting here and you're like, okay, wow, I relate to a lot of this. And I realized that maybe I have some regulation to pursue on my own as a parent, or maybe you're listening, you're not quite a parent, but you're interested in this conversation. What are some ways that we can get started just like examining our triggers, examining our own ability to regulate? Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Corey. I feel like the the body reactions even don't need to make sense with our situation really. And it can definitely with like our parental upbringing and how safe or comfortable we feel going to them and and under stress. But sometimes that there can be like internal pressure too, that comes from, you know, maybe it's intergenerational. I am really into looking at intergenerational roots of, you know, just how safe we feel under stress and the reactions that can come up. And yes, feeling that attachment or connection is so core to who we are. So when we are, uh, you know, sending kids to time out without any emotional support. And I definitely think breaks can be helpful and, you know, take a break. And, but we're so wired to go to each other under stress. So when we haven't had that, it creates this kind of ruptures in our attachment system. And when we're stressed, 
we develop different coping mechanisms. So I think understanding your attachment style is fascinating. That's often a first link to, and it's so individual, but I'll share some just generalized ideas. So understanding our own stress responses. So do we tend to shut down, isolate, rely on people and that at all, like asking for help, is that super hard, super challenging? Or do we kind of maybe over rely on people where we can't make any decisions without going to others for support, or we, we don't have any kind of like self-awareness in that, right? And understanding that attachment tendencies are really our regulation tendencies. So there, there's a lot of um, I don't know about a lot, but newer work that is looking at not just attachment theory, but how that shows up as it's really a regulation theory. So we look at different work like Alan Shore, who is awesome stuff out there that people have adapted in different ways, but really looking at, okay, what is our response to stress? What are our coping mechanisms? What is our attachment system? And then seeing our triggers as our teachers versus something that's wrong with us or uh, something that we just need to stop at all costs. Because when we have ruptured that attachment system and we really don't have the pathway to feel connected to people in a deep way, or it doesn't feel safe to go to people. And I had this experience where my whole life, like I never really went to people when I was stressed. I just kind of figured it out or felt like it wasn't supportive. Or I did get a lot of kind of like maybe unintentional shaming or like, oh, you'll, you'll do better next time. Or you should have been more careful or you'll yeah, figure it out. Just figure it out. It's not a big deal. Or um, a lot of like invalidation can stop us from going to people under stress because it's actually intensified the stress versus dissipated it, which is the goal. So like we want kids to be able to feel stressed and go to adults and, Working with teenagers or even just, you know, nieces, nephews that are in the teenage realm now, it's like, oh my goodness, there is so much social pressure that is keeping them from going to adults under stress or can. So I, I see this as like, you know, how can we model that stress is something we want to go to people with? And I really think that for me, it was having just even one safe, trusted enough person. So a mentor or um, even my husband was the first person. I had issues, issues with like rage in my intimate relationships. Like I would just flip and, and flip a switch and it was like a whole, now I know emotional flashback, amygdala hijacking and some of my early stuff was coming out in my relationships. And he was the first one that like I would kind of push people away or say to leave or just, I want to be alone. Like, I just want to be alone. And I hear this with kids all the time. And I'm like, I don't want to be alone. I know, I know that's not really what you mean because we're, we, we are wired to be with people. If it feels supportive and there's a sensory match and it can be tricky to find that. But when we are thinking about starting with ourselves, I think that relational healing is really how to restore relational wounding. So just finding whether it's a trusted enough friend, a therapist, a counselor, and restoring some of those pathways. And I think that, you know, we talk a lot about nourishing the body and food. And I think that's super important. And if we can do it in a way that feels supportive and nourishing, awesome. Some people, I think, like for me, it was like, I don't need another 
like I'd gone through all these different, you know, whole 30 or or kind of orthorexia, hardly going out ever with friends in college, even because I was like, it was a way to control. So I think meeting people where they are, you know, is, is it supportive or does it feel like we're trying to figure out all these like things to control in a different way? So I'd say figure out your stress responses, your attachment regulation tendencies. There's attachment quizzes online. Even Diane Poole Heller has a good one. And then finding somebody who isn't going to judge. You know, if we if we're stressed about something and we go to somebody and they're like, "Oh, really? Like, well, did you try this, this, this? Like, were you doing this?" Or like, you know, invalidating or fixing, it can be hard to feel secure. So just, you know. Just even being there and trying to regulate yourself can be really supportive. And then also, I think there's so much that you can do in practice with kids. So I have, it's like a nervous system workout being with children, right? It's like, especially I can imagine it's like your own children that you're with all the time because so much. So I, I say co-regulate and eight is a kind of framework of eight different things we can do to co-regulate. So a few are breath. Uh, tone of voice, uh, body position, facial expression. So our facial expressions are linked to that vagus nerve. So if we have a flat affect, it might be that our vagus nerve is feeling on edge, on alert, and is telling us that things are unsafe. So if we even just smile or use our, our wrinkles in our forehead, our eyes, they're sending safety signals to kids, but they also send safety signals to us internally. So I think, you know, if, you, if you're like, I don't have time to go to a therapist or get support in that way right now, or resources aren't there, there's so much that can happen through interaction with kids. So varying our tone of voice is another one. So if, and I used to talk a lot more kind of like monotone, flat, kind of robotic, and doing this and seeing how effective it is. So we're sending signals to them. If we speak in a flat voice, we're sending, say, like kind of threatening signals more so because there's the inner ear has mechanisms and the auditory system and it's all linked together that if we have prosody so like mother ease is linked in this you know talking to babies in a certain voice or a higher pitched voice so and the way that we vary our own voice can really influence our own state so our state can be shifted by the way that we're talking or even whispering you know if i'm feeling stressed and I can add prosody and bring down my voice. And it's like regulating our whole system saying like, I'm safe, I'm secure. And I think having that framework when you're in a kid with a meltdown and it can be so intense. And I work with kids with, you know, affect vulnerability. So maybe oppositional defiance disorder, conduct disorder, all these disorders that are just not aware of the nervous system, but a lot of it can be so intense if somebody's like physically going after you. And so really thinking about the ways that we can, through our interaction, we can influence our own state as well. And there's so much that you can do there. So I'd say tone, pacing, speaking at half the speed and volume you might normally. So even just as I talk about it now, it's like I notice my state shifting and uh, playing around with that because some kids might need a more firm, like, hey, Hey, it is not, I'm not okay with you hitting, uh, what are, and what's going on or what are we upset about? Like some kids might feel more security if you're like the strong leader and you're like, Hey, this, no, not okay. We cannot hit, especially with safety. It's like some of that security can feel so 
like I remember feeling mean. And I think this is why like boundaries work in the context of being with kids is so healing in many ways, because it's not mean. It's not mean if you're, you know, we have, I just had this situation with a kid kind of hitting their baby brother, which is such a common thing, right? It's like the little baby that's taken a lot of resources and rocked the world and you know, hit the little baby. So really connecting with boundaries from an embodied place that is coming from like love and respect for them and like helping them understand the world. Like it isn't okay to hit the baby, right? So, you know, maybe you give a, a warning or try to co-regulate what's going on underneath being available, but that doesn't always happen. So sometimes they just need like to know that there's a secure adult that is trying to help my body be in control when I'm totally out of control. So I think it can be surprising sometimes the way that I interact with kids because it feels more intense or, or like mean it was my self judgment. Like, Oh my God, I'm being mean, but Oh my goodness. So really looking at sometimes that's what kids need to feel secure and it can be really supportive and it's really ideally healing for us as the adult and our system. No, we can, we do have agency. We do have limits. We're not powerless to this kid continuing to hit. We are a fully grown adult now that amygdala hijacking is lying and we can set limits. We can set boundaries and it's not coming from a place of power control, anger, hate of, developmental for kids in this vulnerable state. It's coming from a place of like, I care about you enough to say, this isn't okay. And we'll figure out a different way. We need to figure out a different way, right? So getting a system in place for some type of relational support is so ideal. And we used to have that, I think, ingrained in a village or a community and we don't anymore. So having compassion when it's hard to find and then doing it in interaction in real life with kids. Some great places to start. I love those tips so much. And it really hits home because I don't know how much I've fleshed this out on the podcast necessarily, but you know, I've had quite a journey over the past few years of my own regulation pursuit and own healing pursuit. And even a few years ago, I was in a state where I I almost felt like nervous to be with my kids because I was so dysregulated dealing with so much anger and trauma from all of the, you know, medical things that we walked through and, you know, again, suppressing things as an adult that I never dealt with. And it, I was so, I mean, truly dis- dysregulated is the, is the like perfect word for it that I, I just got to this point of feeling like I have to find healing. I've got to seek healing. And to piggyback off what you were saying, Katie, I mean, the first thing I did was go to a biblical counselor. And I think that was one of the things that really set me on this journey of evaluating all of the underlying things that, you know, were kind of trying to come out. And so, you know, through working with her, I learned about how much shame I was carrying and how I I was kind of stuck in these like shame spirals of convincing myself that I wasn't a good mom or a good friend or a good wife or a good whatever. And that was such a big healing part of, of kind of coming out of that really dark season of feeling like I couldn't control my responses. And I, you know, I wasn't the person that I wanted to be or the mom that I wanted to be. And I love that, you know, you just really touched on it's, it's really such a multifaceted approach to finding our own healing and our own regulation where I know you mentioned foster care with your own family. And that's, I think to me, like if I had to pick, you know, three things in isolation, which there are more than that, but if I had to say, you know, three things that like transformed the regulation skills that I have, 
it would be biblical counseling, you know, having that safe relational space where I could communicate and process and not be judged for it and be, you know, encouraged and supported. Fascia care. I started going to a, we actually have a, a fascia massage therapist uh, local to me at our wellhouse. If you're anywhere near Frisco, um, Dr. Courtney Kayla's wellness collective. I know we've talked about that quite a bit, but they have an incredible team there. And I've been seeing a girl who does massage and, and body work and fascia care all at the same time. And that like, I mean, I could almost immediately tell the difference when I started actually releasing those things from my body in a physical and then paired with that, you know, emotional, spiritual sense. And then of course we can't skip the nutrition part that, you know, once I started eating enough and focusing on minerals and nutrients and being aware of that, you know, my magnesium burn rate and how quickly was I working through things like potassium and I mean, that was the other big piece for me. And it's it's just wild to look back to even a couple of years ago. And it's like, I'm a different person than I was then. And praise the Lord for that, because it was just, it was dark for a long time. And it felt like, I don't know how to get out of this. And so just to, you know, kind of be a walking example, Katie, of what you are sort of recommending is that I'm like, it works. Like it, it really changes your life to go, you know, process with somebody that you trust, whether that's a, a counselor or you know, a trusted friend, um, you know, working with someone I think is great if that is something that you can swing. And then, you know, the body work piece of it and the nutrition piece of it. I mean, all of it is just so important. And so I just love all the advice that you shared about like tone and, you know, expressions. And I mean, it just makes so much sense. I, I remember that, um, I know we talk about the brain rewiring program I did quite frequently, but it's so funny. The connection here, I remember when, you know, you kind of say these phrases and the instructor would tell you, you need to smile while you say these. And you kind of feel like a crazy person because you're like trying to smile while you like tell your body in your limbic system to kind of chill out. <laughs> but it truly is impacting the way that you feel about it, you know, causing yourself to smile. And I love that, you know, you broke down how that affects our kids. Like when we change the way that our voice sounds, our face is responding to them. I mean, those things matter and they really show up in, you know, the way that our kids can you know, co-regulate with us in those moments. I feel like we have a million more questions we we could ask. Maybe we can sort of rapid fire the last few. I feel like this is where we get to in most of our episodes. Where we're like, we talked so much. Can we rapid fire the last couple things? But I would love to hear, Katie, you know, if you have any encouragement for parents who do feel like, you know, they're trying to embody emotional respect with their kids. They're trying to support them in the best ways that they know how, you know, they're trying to you know, regulate and heal themselves so that their kids can then be regulated and healed. And I, I wonder if you have any advice for the parent who kind of feels like I'm doing everything with my kid, right? Like I'm doing all the, all the things that I should be doing and I'm supporting their sleep, their nutrition, their emotional well-being, their, you know, environment, I'm doing everything. And, and my child is still really struggling with dysregulation. I wonder if you have any advice, you know, if, if at that point it's like, Hey, maybe find someone you know, to, to work with, you know, what would you say to a parent who's kind of in that spot where they're like, I've done it all. And I don't know what the next step is. I think that absolutely getting other eyes to just an evaluation, maybe it's an occupational therapy evaluation mm -hmm. and somebody that's really ideally versed in a lot of this. So there are you know, different ways to talk to people, maybe just asking like, how do you support emotions? Or if it's a sensory based OT, like, are they understanding that sensory and emotion are directly linked and they influence one another all day long? So we really need to be coming from this whole holistic developmental path um, and recommending body work. So that's something I recommend all the time, whether it's chiropractic, 
or, um, you know, cranial sacral kind of alternative physical therapy or reflex integration. That's something that I do too with kids that I work with from some extent. And then if they need a lot of it, we'll go in because sometimes like if there can be intergenerational trauma, I really believe that sometimes we don't know where things come from and it's in the DNA. And then, you know, the birth trauma, medical trauma, as you mentioned, it's not all in our control. And then also, yeah, leaning into that spiritual connection. I think this whole path has led me just deeper and deeper in trust with, you know, my relationship to God and understanding that there are some things that, you know, we can't, when we get in that kind of fixing, doing, it's like so often a signal to myself and not to invalidate and take all the steps that we talked about, but also resting in just the being of, you know, the, the co-regulation that comes from this path that we're on and really understanding that sometimes things are there that are sculpting and shaping us in different ways that we may not understand and always might not like, but you know, finding that support, like you mentioned, uh, the counselor that you spoke with and somebody that can really be with you in the, in the hardness, because sometimes it's just challenging. And I've seen some really painful things that, and experienced some really painful things that sometimes it's like just being with somebody in that challenge can be really powerful because we'll inevitably have that at times. I also love that even just the word being is really important for, I think, women to be able to grasp and embody because even the doing versus being are two completely different like mindsets and our hormones respond to them alike. The doing is a lot more of that masculine performance of like, I'm doing all the things versus being is being able to like actually embody the way that God actually designed us differently as women to be able to be receptive and allow things to transform within our own bodies. Like even those two mindsets, our, our bodies respond to them. Like our thoughts are that, are that powerful. So I love that you talked about that. And then just to wrap things up, can you tell us what kind of resources you offer? What kind of work you offer as far as people actually working with you? Yeah. So right now I'm actually taking a break from live programs, but I have a meltdown method program that has been a live group program. So we're going through a course program and then also meeting live to talk about and process things in a group. So kind of daily practical issues, situations that are coming up. And uh, it's been really awesome, the live programs, but managing my own capacity this summer and fall, I've kind of taken a step back from that. So you can still get all of the program replays for the most part, many online. and. Um, I also have tons of masterclass replays on how to play for regulation. So we didn't talk about that, you know, accessing all this regulation through play joy, but really I often suggest starting with some type of that because it can be such a benefit and such a huge powerhouse of potential when it comes to engaging with kids and moving them through these pathways and stress cycles and easing things for everybody. And then lots of uh, free content on Instagram. So almost five years to the day of content and posts and uh, lots of blood, sweat, and tears in that Instagram account. So check out 
all of that. And if you want to work with me directly, I do do one-to-ones in a limited capacity and it's more intensive work. So really processing through triggers, things that are coming up. And then we do play sessions with the kids involved. So I kind of get a glimpse of how to, how to support, you know, what's going really well and add and expand on that. And then how to point out different areas of the kids' profiles and how that matches or mismatches parent profiles and go from there. So my email is hello at thrivinglittles.com and my Instagram is at thrivinglittles. So there's lots there. Katie, thank you so much for being on. This was so enlightening and I love that it was kind of this introduction into people being able to go into deeper if they want to and you have such a gentle uh, spirit about you and it you have such a warm presence. And I love how inviting this conversation is and like kind of just like guards down, walls are down. People are, are able to just like sit and listen and reflect instead of being maybe like triggered or things being harder for them to, I guess, like examine honestly. So I just I just so appreciate the presence that you that you hold for people. And thank you so much for coming on. And we will link all of your uh, resources in our show notes. And we will see you guys in the next episode. Bye.